I had made a deal with George Lucas on the beaches of Hawaii that he said, look, Steve, if you, if you do this first movie, you've got to do two more. You've got to do three altogether. And I shook his hand in 1977, in May of 77. So whether or not I you know, you know, wanted to in my heart make a follow-up to Indiana Jones, I, was, I had a handshake with my best friend. I was going to make two more movies. And it was a, a perfect opportunity to create a series of adventure films. From Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. You don't believe me. You will, Dr. Jones. With Star Wars, like any story, things get bad before they get better. And by the nature of the fact that that was one story that had been split into three parts, the middle part is the darkest part. In Indiana Jones, because they're separate, it was really a matter of saying, why don't we make a little edgier movie? Make it a little bit darker, a little bit more um, scary. Students at Marshall College everywhere. Welcome to episode number 273 of Blast Points. This is Jason. And this is Gabe. It's Indie Year continuing here. And we're finally talking about Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I heard this one is scary. (laughs) And actually, I know from experience it's scary because I traumatized one of my children with this movie unintentionally. (laughs) Temple of Doom, scaring children for almost 40 years now. (laughs) It has such an interesting place in history. It's a hot-button topic to even talk about Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom because as a sequel to Raiders of the Lost Ark, it very much had an uphill battle to top that movie because I think, number one, No one ever expected Raiders to be quite as special as it was. They always knew they wanted to make sequels and they they wanted to do it quickly. And it's like, well, what do we do? As we're going to get into later on, I think that kind of big question of what do we do? How do we do this? How do we make a sequel to Raiders of the Lost Ark? It's just, it's a question that kind of plagued this movie. And I think still does, even with the reaction to Temple of Doom, still to this day, it's it's forever compared to Raiders. Well, it's almost like what we talked about with the Art of Force Awakens book, just how starting with Temple of Doom and through all of them, the the hardest part of making a new Indiana Jones movies is the is the script and idea phase almost. Like I feel like they go through so many different writers and scripts and stories and all that, like 
maybe it's gotten worse as each one goes, but it, after that first movie, it never really seemed to go smoothly. It's true, and you've got George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and their friendship kind of at the center of it all. And the kind of give and take that I feel like exists between the two of them with creating these Indiana Jones movies, where you can look at all of them and kind of point, well, that one's a little bit Lucas and that one's a little bit Spielberg. And as we're going to get into a Temple of Doom, it was a little bit more George Lucas. Because the one thing always you hear with Temple of Doom over and over again is how dark it is. It's dark. It's very dark. Even in all the making ofs for Temple of Doom, like every all the bonus features on the Blu-ray and the DVD, they're just over and over again talking about how dark it is. And a lot of the times George Lucas will compare it to Empire and so will Spielberg. And it, I started thinking about that a lot this week, getting ready for this episode. And it kind of makes sense for Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back or The Last Jedi or even Attack of the Clones, like the, the middle chapters and trilogies being darker. But those are kind of more, we're going to make things really bad for our characters and it will pay off in the in the third chapter, the resolution chapter. But the Indiana Jones movies, at least w- with Temple of Doom, weren't really so much about an overarching Indiana Jones character arc kind of situation. Like like we said, they were just kind of making it up as they went. And at least at this point, it was kind of more focused on, well, what's the adventure? What's the quest? It's the Saturday morning serial adventure. It's the... It's the B-movie, dressed up in fancy clothes. And I started thinking, is Temple of Doom just kind of dark for the sake of being dark? Because that's where the filmmaker's headspace was at when they were making this? (laughs) And is that kind of okay? (laughs) Yeah, I think it totally is. You know, whether they want to admit it, maybe their intention, and then also... It's okay to do that because I think that's one of the things that the promise of Indiana Jones is so cool is that it is, I guess, more or less like a James Bond thing where every movie is can kind of be its own thing. And it's not a big continuous story. It's just an adventure with this character and potentially a bunch of new characters. And it seems like it was on purpose to not continue the story because Spielberg early on, right, wanted to bring back Marion and was thinking of it as a actual sequel. And Lucas was the one who said, no, no, I want this one to be a prequel and take place before Raiders. And as soon as you do that, any sort of middle chapter kind of goes out the window because if anything, now Raiders is the middle chapter. So I think the comparison to Empire Strikes Back is not necessarily valid because like you said, it's the middle chapter of a continuous story where this is just another adventure that just happens to take place previous to the previous adventure that takes place after it. But then it's interesting going forward after Temple of Doom, like Last Crusade and even Crystal Skull, and I'm sure it's going to happen in the the still very mysterious Indy 5, we do start to have a more continuous kind of story with elements and characters. And the character of Indiana Jones does kind of progress a bit more than in Temple of Doom. Well, and do you think that that's the result of maybe Spielberg taking a little more control of the, the overall direction? Because that's more something that maybe he's more interested in. in. And, you know, we'll, I'm sure talk about that more when we get to the last crusade where it seems like Lucas was maybe more focused in kind of his original Indiana Jones idea of it being more like a James Bond thing and being just a series of standalone adventure stories. Cause he, you know, again, he was the one that wanted to place Temple of Doom earlier. And he was also the one that wanted a different female character in each movie and not continuing the story of Indy and Marion. I've always thought that that was the case that, like we said, Temple of Doom is more of a George Lucas one. And Last Crusade is more of a Spielberg one. And then Crystal Skull is more of a George Lucas one. And now Indy 5 is the complete wild card. But Well, if anything, I feel like Crystal Skull is almost more of a mix between the two of them. As much as there's moments that scream, this is a crazy George Lucas movie. But the fact that that one, you know, and you have to wait till we get to the Crystal Skull episode to get more 
<laughs> deep dives into that. But that one, if anything, is almost like a mix because it it has the continuation of the family. It's got Mutt. It's got Marion back. But then also it's got some of the craziest of the crazy. So, yeah, really, I think if you're going back to these first two, to Raiders and Temple of Doom, that, yeah, Temple of Doom may be more of a, a George Lucas picture, which makes sense because Spielberg was going crazy in the eighties and how, how many movies did he make between Raiders and, and Temple of Doom? Well, the biggest one was E.T. The E.T. was such a game changer for Steven Spielberg coming right out of Raiders. And then he did the Twilight Zone movie. He did his kick the can segment in Twilight Zone before he did Temple of Doom. Well, and he produced Poltergeist in between as well, right? Yeah. Depending on, you know, what, what people believe, <laughs> well, what his involvement in Poltergeist was and yeah that's that's a whole nother story but he was involved with poltergeist however you want to interpret that at the in between the two movies so he wasn't just sitting around waiting for his next movie which kind of led to some of the early drama too right of lucas basically trying to find a window to get spielberg to agree to direct this next one i know how i felt about temple of doom when i saw it in the summer of 84. And I know how I still feel about Temple of Doom, but I I really wonder what like older audiences thought of Temple of Doom when that movie came out in 1984 because it is interesting now looking back how much more of a horror adventure movie it is than like Raiders kind of being like a supernatural adventure movie. Like Temple of Doom is just more at times just straight horror and i want to say it could have been for me the first time i ever saw like anything even close to horror in a movie theater but it didn't really phase me that much as a kid i mean i had the lunchbox which had a picture of mola ram holding like a flaming heart on the side of the lunchbox (laughs) and i think i talked about it back in in our patreon episode when we did a commentary for temple of doom which by the way we're gonna when when this episode comes out if you head to our patreon that we're gonna make that uh free for everyone so you can you can watch temple of doom along with our commentary over there for free but i had a a blue temple of doom t-shirt from jc penny that I wanted to wear every single day during the summer of 1984. And I tried to do that. And my, my mom got so frustrated with me that I wouldn't take it off that they tried. I think they like freaked out. And my mom tried to like get rid of my blue Temple of Doom shirt. And I, I freaked out. And then they eventually they gave in and they were like, fine, if you want to wear a dirty t-shirt all summer long, you can. And I don't know how long I wore my blue Temple of Doom t-shirt, but it was my favorite t-shirt in the world. And it started me on the path of only wearing movie-related T-shirts, I think, for the rest of my life. (laughs) But I had the comic book adaptation. I was Temple of Doom crazy as a little kid. But I think that was part of the perfect thing where it was like people's hearts being ripped out of their chest and just weird, freaky stuff. But I ate it all up. And I still really have very warm feelings for this weird, weird, weird movie, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. It's it's very cozy for me in a weird way. Well, the thing is, because, yeah, I loved this movie when I was a kid, too. And I feel like this was one of those, one of the first movies I really remember, like, being really aware of before it came out and being excited to go see it. As much as I like the Star Wars movies, that was more from you know, watching somebody's copied VHS tape kind of a thing where I, I, other than Return of the Jedi, I can't really remember, you know, if I even saw them in the theater before that. And maybe, yeah, it was just the age between, because this and Return of the Jedi were kind of a right around the same, you know, just what, just a year apart. Yeah, I loved it. It was gross and it was scary, but it was exciting. And I think they were able to make those movies that were just on the threshold of being too much for kids, but being like kid enough for adults and adult enough for kids. And it was like, yeah, it was like, this is gross and this is scary. But then it's also when it's not being gross and scary, it's really funny more so than Raiders. It's almost like, you know, Raiders is more even as far as in its tone and Temple of Doom is kind of goes all over the place. But I think that's part of its 
its charm. And yeah. And, and I think if anything, as I got older, there was that period, maybe when I was a teenager, when it was like, no one liked Temple of Doom, it wasn't cool. And then, you know, as I've gotten older and every, every time I watch Temple of Doom, like I love it more and more and more. And I think that's part of the charm too, where it's like Raiders is such a perfect movie. It's hard to like it any more than you already do. But with Temple of Doom, it's just there's something about it that I just appreciate it more and more every time I watch it. Because it's, I think, because it's so different than Raiders. It's almost like with Phantom Menace, like being so different. And and over time, you realize that the fact that it's so different is what makes it so special. And I think that's kind of my same feelings with Temple of Doom, that the idea of it's almost like I'm not watching Raiders of the Lost Ark 2. It's like I want to watch Indiana Jones, but do I want to watch temple of doom or raiders and they're it's not like i'm watching a sequel i'm just watching a totally different thing with the same character if that makes sense it's like do i want to drink a coke or drink a seven up <laughs> they're both fizzy wonderful drinks but they're not the same thing but they both come in a can you know they're close but they're different but they're both good steven spielberg george lucas and Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones are on location in San Francisco, Hong Kong, Macau, Sri Lanka in the Indian Ocean, and in London filming the greatest adventure of all time, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Trust me. For the summer of 84, So after Raiders of the Lost Ark, Harrison Ford was contracted to two sequels. But I didn't know this, that Spielberg had the option to do sequels. He could either do them or not do them. It was up to him. And the Steven Spielberg after Raiders was not the same person before Raiders in his career. Like like we talked about in our very first indie year segment, like Raiders was really for Lucas and Spielberg like a a movie to prove that they could do something on time under budget and that everything they they did wasn't going to be this big extravagant thing. They could still do extravagant, but not make every studio head in the world <laughs> completely nervous and freaking out. Yeah, and Spielberg had done E.T. and was moving into a different kind of phase in his career around this time. Like it wasn't too long after Temple of Doom where he did The Color Purple and started to do Empire of the Sun and was moving away from the the popcorn blockbuster kind of thing. You get the sense in the the Rinsler book, which again, shout out to the J.W. Rinsler making of Indiana Jones book, which we are using heavily once again <laughs> for this episode. It's an amazing book if you don't have it already. But Spielberg's saying the danger in making a sequel is that you can never satisfy everyone. If you give people the same movie with different scenes, they say, why weren't you more original? But if you give them the same character in another fantastic adventure, but with a different tone, you risk disappointing the other half of the audience who just wanted a carbon copy of the first film with a different girl and a different bad guy. So you win and you lose both ways. This is very true. That still goes on. Well, and it's still very true that... If George Lucas is around, you're probably going to go with the one where you do the completely different thing and just deal with people being upset. It's not about spaceships. <laughs> it's about families. It's about real, real, real things. But they had a, a heck of a time with Temple of Doom trying to figure out what that what it was going to be about. And what the original story was something, a haunted house in Scotland. And Lucas conceived of a whole crazy opening sequence with a motorcycle chase on the Great Wall of China, Indiana Jones discovering a land full of dinosaurs, which is interesting. There was the Monkey King idea, which they went back to again as they were starting to get ready for Last Crusade. But yeah, the one thing George Lucas kept pushing for Temple of Doom, like we talked about, was it had to be dark. Over and over again in the Rinsler book, it had to be dark. Temple of Doom fell into George's philosophy that because in the Star Wars trilogy, you know, Empire Strikes Back was the darker of the two stories. 
George wanted the Indiana Jones series to follow a similar sine wave where it, we would dip into a kind of inner world or inner sanctum of darkness and human sacrifice with this whole Cali cult thing that George came up with for the second installment of this adventure trilogy. I wasn't really okay with that. I kind of resisted it. And, but George was tenacious that he wanted the second one to be dark, and I was worried it would be commercial enough. And, and it wasn't as commercial as the first one and the third one. But George thought it was an important thing that he wanted to do, and I certainly deferred to George's better judgment because he had seen this three-movie arc and this is what he wanted to do, and I was his director for hire. I was very happy to help realize his vision. Wake up, Dr. Jones! Wake up! Well, and just like our Battle for Endor episode, this is around the time of George's divorce from Marsha. We said it a lot in the Battle for Endor episode, the similarities between Temple of Doom and the Battle for Endor are all over the place. The separation of children from their families... Death coming out of nowhere. <laughs> but they also both have the similarity of even though the horrible things happen to the characters, there is still a happy ending. So at least, you know, when they go dark, it's kind of a journey into darkness and out of darkness. And it's not just like you leave the theater all bummed out because <laughs> everybody's dead at the end. <laughs> because really, Temple of Doom's ending is way more uplifting and happy than Raiders. I mean, Raiders, it kind of ends on a, it's like the blob movie, right? Where it's like, I remember as a kid that always freaked me out where it's like, they didn't kill it. It's just frozen somewhere. Like the whole <laughs> idea of, you know, the arc is still out there. It's just you sitting somewhere. Like it's kind of ominous a little bit where this movie, you know, is all flowers and colors and, you know, people hugging their families. Like Temple of Doom is, is George Lucas going through therapy after his divorce, <laughs> just working it all out on screen. This good old therapist, Dr. Jones. It's just like on Raiders of the Lost Ark, they had a four-day story conference. And this time they had their new writers on board, Gloria Katz and Willard. We never know how to pronounce his last name, but I'm going to say Hike. And they kind of were the ones that hashed out the whole Kali cult there was a lot of stuff that they put into Temple of Doom that were leftover action beats from Raiders, the, the big brawl in Shanghai, the inflatable raft of an airplane, the mine car chase. The opening musical number, Anything Goes, was lifted from Radioland Murders, which they were working on with George Lucas at that time. When they had come off writing American Graffiti for Lucas and... It's all over the annotated screenplays book where a lot of the, the middle part of A New Hope, like a lot of the Death Star banter between Han, Luke, and Leia, was actually written by Gloria and Willard, which really kind of makes sense. Suddenly, I always think it's interesting how in the, the Death Star part, A New Hope kind of becomes a different movie for a little while in there. It's true. And yeah, Spielberg signed on kind of reluctantly with kind of the attitude of like what the, the first one was fun. Let's let's do it again because it was fun and you know I made that handshake deal with my buddy George. That's always another one of the kind of fascinating things with the Indiana Jones movies of just how, in a way, with every one of them, not only is you know normal movie production stuff kind of on the line, but potentially their entire friendship in a way is on the line because it's kind of a testament to just how much they are made for each other that they're able to keep working together and stay such good friends. When I always like to that Spielberg, when he talks about Temple of Doom and he, he recognizes kind of how crazy it was. George wanted all this stuff in it. And I like how he always says it was his job to inject as much humor into the movie as possible. Because yeah, like you said in the beginning, it's kind of a lot funnier movie than Raiders too, And for how kind of dark and sinister it can be, it does have some downright silly, silly moments in it. And I guess that's the thing too. Like you were saying, like the tone of Temple of Doom is all over the place. And you can literally feel Spielberg trying to be like, Hey, I think we need a joke in here. <laughs> but I, I think the balance between the two is one of the things that, 
I just really appreciate about the movie, the more I see it too, is just, it starts out so goofy, almost like a slapstick comedy in parts, which is kind of an Indiana Jones thing, even in Raiders. I don't know. It's maybe it's just because Spielberg's so good at mixing everything together and just the way it's edited that before you know it, like, you know, you're in the scary stuff and it's like, wait, wait, where did the jokes go? And you just go with it. And then eventually just when you can't take it anymore, you come out the other side and it, you know, it turns back into a fun adventure again. Temple of Doom is definitely a tougher movie, but it was tougher intentionally, you know, pulling somebody's heart out. It had been done quite a bit before. And, uh, you know, the fact that the children were in jeopardy had been done a lot before. So these weren't ideas that were, oh my gosh, we're stepping over a line here. We're doing things that people have always done. The point was, is that we did it better than anybody else did, which made it even more intense. So around this time they're getting the script ready, Lucasfilm researcher Deborah Fine made several comments about the early draft of the script, kind of warning everybody, like, hey, there's some stuff in here that y'all should think about. <laughs> Talking about how, you know, there's a lot of stuff in here that could potentially be extremely offensive. The Maharaja, like, wouldn't be eating, like, monkey brains, and maybe the food, like, the crazy food scene is going a little bit too far, and maybe it is a little bit overly too violent, which is wild to read back then that she was trying to warn them about a lot of the stuff that still is just part of Temple of Doom's bizarre legacy. Yeah, and Rinsler says it really well in the book where he says it would have consequences during the film's life. And, you know, one of the things that doesn't age well with the Indiana Jones series or really any of this kind of type of adventure story is just when you're in situations where a lot of the villains or the antagonists end up being native people from faraway lands, it puts you in an awkward situation because you're making stereotypes of people who aren't really that way. But if you portray them the way they really are, then they're not the villains you want them to be. So it's just this whole kind of going back to the serials that these were based on were kind of have their problems. <laughs> Temple of Doom walks such an interesting tightrope where, yeah, it pays tribute to all the things that inspired Indiana Jones, the, the Saturday morning serials, in all the good and maybe the wrong ways. <laughs> yeah, it emulates the good and the bad of its influences. And there's a quote in the Rinsler book, where George Lucas says the story ended up being a lot darker than we in, than we intended it to. Part of it is I was going through a divorce at the time, and I wasn't in a good mood. And part of it was just we wanted to do something a little bit more edgy. And what's crazy is the first draft of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Death, as it was called at the time, was even darker, was even crazier. Yeah, there's a scene where Indy is teaching the little Maharaja and Short Round how to use the whip. The script says, The little Maharaja's eyes began glowing yellow and he hisses softly in a strange voice. So it's way more demon possession horror kind of stuff. There's a whole part at the end where the thuggy warriors are crucifying themselves to trees and launching themselves at the British troops that show up at the end. If we learned anything from the Raider story conferences, their story conferences get a little, little over the top. Yeah, there's a whole thing in the, the first draft when, when Indy is possessed and he's talking to Willie Scott. Indiana Jones says, Kali knows there have been too many lies. There's not God's heaven, just the horror. I've seen it. Life preying on life, rivers destroying mountains, a comet in space exploding, the hate, the greed, always greed. Don't you understand? Kali is freedom. <laughs> Can you imagine? It's almost like Indy is talking to a class of children with his wife, and he starts talking about space and how the earth is going to blow up one day because the sun's going to explode. <laughs> hmm. 
Maybe those came from the same person. I can only imagine those uh, the story meeting. I want Indiana Jones talking about a comet in space. It's going to explode in the rivers of blood. <laughs> Poor Steve Spielberg's like, why don't we open it up with a musical number? <laughs> so let's take a minute. Let's talk about some of the new characters in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Let's talk about Kate Capshaw as Willie Scott. Much like the entire movie, Willie Scott is completely different from Marion Ravenwood. She is not at all the same character. I think that is why she is so great and she's perfect for this movie. Much like the rest of the movie, she is just such an over-the-top, borderline cartoon character that I think fits in perfectly with the the tones that this film goes to and and what you know what does a horror movie need it needs someone to scream and she screams with the best of them and just her interactions with Indy throughout the movie just I don't know it makes me laugh every time I always loved Willie Scott because I I, I think I said it when we talked to Amy with the or Women of Indy episode Willie just reminds me of my sister always has <laughs> always will in every way i've always just kind of gotten willie scott and i love kate capshaw i love kate capshaw just giving her all in the movie you can tell that she knows exactly what kind of movie she's in what's going on there's a great moment what in the rinser book right when they're talking about when they're filming the raft scene between kate capshaw and harrison ford yeah, early on in filming, before she kind of figured this whole thing out, they're floating in the raft in the river. She says, Steven Spielberg's on the shore. We're away from him, and he's got one of those bullhorns. We must have been on take eight. Three of those takes were not good because of the raft, and the others were because of me. And Harrison says, look, doll, you're making way too much of this. You don't have to do anything. This is a B-movie. Just say your lines. <laughs> But she goes on to say, he said it with warmth and respect. He said exactly what I needed to hear. Yeah. After that, she got it because I don't think it's easy to play a character like that. And she comes across, she is that character. Like, and for being such an over the top character, it just never feels out of place to me. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's one of those things. It's like, is she better than Marion? I don't think you can even make that choice because they're such different characters that there's no comparison. They just, it's, it's Coke and seven up again. They're both, <laughs> they both taste good when you're thirsty. Can't complain about either one. I was happy in Shanghai. And Ki Hoi Kwan as Short Round. Oh, he's the best. He always reminds me of there was a series of Indiana Jones Choose Your Own Adventure books in the 80s where you were like supposed to be Indiana Jones's nephew or something. It really doesn't make any sense. But it was like you're a little kid going around with Indiana Jones on his adventures. And he's like every Choose Your Own Adventure like choice part is like he's like i don't know what do you think nephew <laughs> i always just love the idea of bringing in a kid sidekick kind of like kate capshaw he's just having fun you can tell in every scene he's very 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 genuine and what was the whole thing that like he didn't even try out for the movie it was actually his brother yeah i think according to the rinsler book his brother was there for the audition and he just went along with them and eventually they were like who's this other kid at that, I think that was it. They they fell in love with him. They I think made a tape of him, and everyone was like, "That's the kid." And it is, yeah. It's one of those magical moments of finding literally a real kid who just fit right in the movie. And I can't imagine the movie without him or or anyone else playing that part. Like as unbelievable as this movie is, he's completely believable in the movie. <laughs> Short round, step on it. Okie dokie, Dr. Jones, hold on to your potatoes. Run, that loud as a kid driving the car. So they were getting ready to start filming. 
And as they were scouting out locations, they were denied permission to film in North India due to the government there finding the script extremely offensive. Frank Marshall explained that originally the scenes were going to be shot in India at a fantastic palace. They required us to give them a script, so we sent it over. We didn't think it was going to be a problem, but because of the voodoo element with Molram and the thuggies, the Indian government was a little bit hesitant to give us permission. Still interesting, though, that (laughs) kind of like the Deborah Fine part, there were kind of people being like, wait, what are you doing with this movie? (laughs) And they just kept right on going. So April 1983, just one month before the the release of Return of the Jedi, filming begins in Sri Lanka. On day two, what Spielberg slips on a rock and sprains his foot. On day six, there's extras suffering from heat stroke. On day seven, Kate Capshaw gets stung on the hand by a giant bug. An electrician twists his ankle. And what by June, but a month into filming, Harrison Ford's back is really giving him problems from riding the elephant and doing a bunch of his own stunts. But he keeps going. There's like crazy stuff where they have like a hospital bed on set and like Harrison Ford is laying in the bed until he has to do the scene and then he gets out and does the scene. And they're filming the part where Indy fights the thuggy warrior in their room in the palace. I mean, Harrison Ford completely blows out his back. Yeah, he gets to the point where I think he's stuck. It's like he can't he can't lay down. He can't stand up. He's, like, flown back to L.A. The movie is completely, like, at a standstill where they don't know what they're going to do. I was back here in the States, actually, when that happened because I would go back and forth, and I got this call, and uh, Stephen said, Harrison is really in bad shape here, you know, and I don't know what to do about it. You know, he's really... They said he's working, you know, but he's really in pain, and and I don't know how much longer this is going to last. So I said, okay, and I jumped on a plane, and I got there the next morning, and Harrison was in really terrible pain. He would be on the on the set on a bed, and then they would sort of lift him up and get him, and he'd sort of walk through his things, and they'd get him back on the bed. And I said, this, we can't do this. I said, if we have to shut the picture down, we'll shut the picture down. So I just said, get, let's get an airplane. Let's fly Harrison to Los Angeles. Let's have this operation happen as soon as possible. And we did. Quiet, please. Uh, Harrison Ford uh, has a message for everybody here. Uh, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. The good news is Harrison Ford is fine. He feels great. His enzyme papaya treatment worked fantastically well. And he's uh, doing exercises and getting back into shape. And the bad news is he needs until August 8th to get back into shape. And it's so wild reading this now. And it happened in 1983, in the summer of 1983. And thinking back to... Force Awakens, and especially with just recently Harrison Ford, what, hurting his shoulder while they're filming Indy 5 because he was, like, rehearsing a fight. It's like poetry. It rhymes. (laughs) It's just something that just keeps happening over and over again. Yeah, if Harrison Ford isn't hurt, then it's not going to be a good movie. (laughs) That's why he keeps crashing planes just to build up up his uh, tank of good movies. But in this time where they don't know what to do, Spielberg being Spielberg uses this opportunity to do some really amazingly creative stuff, shoot around Harrison Ford not being there. Like, I did not know this, but the whole Stone Crusher fight sequence towards the end of the movie with him and superstar stuntman Pat Roach was completely shot around Ford not being there. Like, most of the time, that's a stunt double except for the close-up shots of Indy's face. And that was something that was not storyboarded at all and completely made up on the fly. And in this time, they filmed the amazing opening Anything Goes musical number. And they even have time in here to throw a birthday party for two-year-old Amanda Lucas, right? There's a lot of, of tidbits about the production of the Indiana Jones movies in this in the Rinsler book, but... Probably the most important tidbit of information on the production of this film is they had a birthday party for two-year-old Amanda Lucas on the Anything Goes set. If you don't know, Frank Marshall was not only a producer, he would also entertain the crew 
and cast at the rap parties as a magician known as Dr. Fantasy, whose, I think, entire purpose in life is to do magic tricks and then at the end of the act, fall into a cake. And because it had become a tradition at Amanda's birthday, he did his show and he fell into the cake. And apparently Amanda burst into tears. (laughs) So not only did the movie torment children, the production tormented children as well. But I like to think that's why Kathleen Kennedy fell in love with Frank Marshall was his Dr. Fantasy act. And and falling into cakes. I hope he fell into a cake at their wedding. Three birthday cakes. So despite all these difficulties and Dr. Fantasy falling into cakes, Spielberg finished five days short of the 85-day schedule and within the $28 million budget. And the rough cut prepared by Michael Kahn came in at two hours and 10 minutes. The first cut that Spielberg showed Lucas was 15 minutes shorter. This is from the cinema of George Lucas book. But both Spielberg and Lucas were able to identify a clear problem with Temple of Doom. They said, we looked at each other and the first things out of our mouth was too fast. We needed to decelerate the action. Spielberg says he actually added mat shots into the movie to slow it down. Spielberg said, we made it a little bit slower by putting breathing room back in so that there'd be a two-hour oxygen supply for the audience. It's a good thing they did. Otherwise, Temple of Doom would be making people pass out. (laughs) Now it just makes you exhausted, but at least you don't pass out. And very much in the same way how Steven Spielberg's career accelerated post-Raiders, ILM was in a very different position than when Raiders came along, where... After Raiders, ILM had done Return of the Jedi, E.T., The Wrath of Khan, Poltergeist. And instead of Raiders kind of being like, oh, how do we do something that isn't really Star Wars or strictly sci-fi fantasy based? Now it's kind of like, "Uh, we've got to fit Temple of Doom kind of into this schedule with all these other movies that we've got going on. And leading the charge with Temple of Doom was Dennis Muren, Lauren Peterson, and Joe Johnston, a total dream team. And one of the real standouts in Temple of Doom, effects-wise, is the incredible, amazing, mind-blowing minecar chase. Miniatures like nobody has ever seen before. And it was also symbolic of a lot of what the critics were saying about these movies. These are e-ticket rides, they kept saying, like a Disneyland. I guess they meant Thunder Mountain or Space Mountain. So George and I kind of said, well, why don't we give them a roller coaster ride? Let's give them an actual e-ticket ride, and that's how they get out of the uh, the darkness. Well, and what's cool is the whole thing they came up with was they realized that the thing slowing ILM down was the opticals. It's all about the opticals. And that doing the optical printing of multiple, basically shooting multiple layers and then compositing them all together was slowing everything down. So they figured out a way to do as many shots in Temple of Doom, bypassing that step of compositing multiple layers together, which meant doing a lot of completely in-camera VFX shots, which probably led to a lot of these miniatures of they, they couldn't really do you know, the minecart on one pass and the background on another pass. Like, it had to kind of all be done at once. And I always think it's amazing that Dennis Muren had his team hijack, like, Nikon still cameras to handle movie film, right? To be able to have this smaller kind of camera go through the miniature tunnels that they built for the minecart so they could get the kind of shots they wanted. Because that's the thing, really, when you think about the incredible minecar chase and try and figure out how they could shoot this with a movie camera. You're like, what did they build like giant tunnels? Like what are we even seeing here? Yeah. Cause they, they realized that the smaller they could make the sets, the cheaper the sets would be. And the size of the sets were based on the size of the camera they needed to film it. So by retrofitting these Nikon cameras to shoot on motion picture film instead of still, film they were able to build the set much smaller and they even go into saying how they were able to build a lot of the 
miniature rocks with just aluminum foil that they would just spray paint to look like rocks. So they saved even more money that way. Dennis Mirren, I tell you, he's he's a magician with the, with the visual effects, and he's a magician with hair or no hair. Well, and the other thing that you know you might not realize too is so many of these miniature shots have puppets in them, which is something that carries over into the speeder bike chase in Return of the Jedi, with some of the speeder bikes, you know, just having rod puppets, and you not really ever realizing that it's not the actors; it's it's a puppet, and a lot of the minecart shots are the same way. Well, and this is something we're going to be going into later in the year with indie year too, but. The minecart chase is just, it's very Star Wars-esque with incredible technology with visual effects. And it the music completely cuts out and it turns into a, a Ben Burt symphony of sound. So Deborah Fine tried to warn them. The country of India tried to warn them. But then when the movie was done and presented to the MPAA, and they saw hearts being ripped out, yeah, and children being whipped, Temple of Doom literally created the PG-13 rating. It was too intense for PG, not quite R. It was this whole new thing. And it's wild to think, too, that Gremlins came out just a matter of days after Temple of Doom, too, where Gremlins was also very much like, what are you guys doing with this movie here? <laughs> but it really is. like If you try to describe what PG-13 is, and then you try to describe Temple of Doom, like it is the same thing, and it is like we were saying, where it's like as intense as you can get, but still be a kid movie, but it's not quite too intense where it's an adult movie from my experience during that period of time them putting this pg-13 label on it just made me want to see it more where it's like wait what you're saying is it so intense it's so freaky that it's too freaky for pg it's like we were eight years old (laughs) we're we're still we're a long ways from 13 we're like oh we're, we're going to see some wild stuff with this Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. There was the thing. I had the lunchbox with Moa Ram holding a flaming heart on the side. And I would show it to people at Lincoln Park Elementary in Muskegon, Michigan, and be like, see this? You seen this movie? <laughs> I saw it. I saw it six times. Got nerves of steel, this one. Well, that's just for the parents to know that they're going to be scared, baby. I don't know. Uh, was My, my daughter might have been – she might have been – um, she might have been six. I well, the plan was to see all the Indiana Jones movies at the theater since they come back every once in a while, and we'd watched Raiders at home. We went to Temple of Doom, and for whatever reason, it was like thirty minutes, forty minutes into the movie when I remembered, oh yeah, this is the one where they ripped the heart out of the guy. <laughs> <laughs> that seems. I guess I'm a bad parent. <laughs> Because she was really freaked out. Yeah. But my son, who was, yeah. was he four? He loved it. So you love what you love. So Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom opens on May 23rd, 1984, the largest one-week gross in history at that time, making about $46 million, which inflated today, that would have been about $118 million over Memorial Day weekend. The reviews were very, very, very mixed. One of the harshest critics... On Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, though, was our old friend Lawrence Kasdan, where he had to say, I didn't want to be associated with Temple of Doom. I just thought it was horrible. It's so mean. There's nothing pleasant about it. I think Temple of Doom represents a chaotic period in both of their lives, and the movie is very ugly and (laughs) mean-spirited. When all the things we've talked about in this episode, too, some of the, the differences 
between Raiders and Temple of Doom. It, you go back and you read a lot of the old reviews. It's, it's a lot of the stuff people were talking about. They're just like, wait, what is this? Like, where's the the joy of Raiders of the Lost Ark? I think it's still there, though. It's just at the beginning and the end. <laughs> it forces you to confront the darkness before you get back to the light. And maybe people just weren't ready for that in 1984. It ends with kids hugging their parents and smiling. What's, what's happier than that? So all of this, everything we've talked about here, the darkness, the controversy, everything that is just part of the legacy of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, it makes me wonder how Temple of Doom will ripple into the future of Indiana Jones. I think Temple of Doom casts such a big shadow that I can't see indie stories going this dark again. I honestly do think Indy has a future beyond film in the whatever way Disney wants to take it, Lucasfilm. But I don't know, Gabe, what would you say are the lessons of Temple of Doom going forward, both good and bad, for whatever direction Indiana Jones goes in the future? Well, it does seem like one lesson was, I think they learned to be more sensitive about other cultures because they kind of went back to Nazis where everybody hates Nazis. (laughs) So it seemed like they've kind of maybe learned that lesson of being a little more sensitive. I think an interesting thing that's maybe an unfortunate thing in a way is this was the last time, at least with Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones, we got the idea of just another Indiana Jones adventure kind of independent of anything else because I think just as a result of the time between the movies, it kind of made having kind of this continuous Indiana Jones story of three with his father and four with his son and Marion and five potentially, I think is going to have to be kind of a continuation of where the character was in four, that this was kind of our one snapshot of what a self-contained Indiana Jones story would be which makes it special and different than the other, really all the other films since kind of starting with three was building off of Raiders. Yeah. It just has a special place in Indiana Jones history as being the almost the one standalone story. You really, the only way I could see getting back to this more kind of standalone, unique Indiana Jones story is if we ever did, I, I always say the, a really cool idea for something Indiana Jones in the future would be an Indiana Jones animated series where it could be young indie on adventures and it could be lots of different tones and lots of different kinds of adventures. And I would almost love to see that embrace a couple darker stories just to almost help this movie fit in with all the rest kind of, because it's like everything we talked about it. It's such a unique thing in the rest of the indie movies. Well, that's why I think if anything, really crystal skull helped it not feel as much like the weird indie movie anymore. And to me, it's like Raiders and last crusade kind of go together. And then you have the in-between ones with temple of doom and crystal skull where that's indie doing something different and being more stylized, a stylized interpretation of indie as opposed to the more grounded interpretation. Temple of Doom's legacy is always going to be unique. It's always going to be debated and talked about. I think years from now, there's still going to be people saying it's their favorite Indiana Jones movie. There's still going to be people telling them that they're crazy. And that's the thing. It's it's just always going to be unique. It's always going to stand out. It's always going to be a little bit different. It's got a charm to it that you can't deny. Well, for good or bad, really, Temple of Doom pushed the limits of what it could be, what it should have been. They put maybe it pushed the limits of good taste. It literally, it's special because of the fact that, yeah, it kind of, for good or bad, it just pushed 
everything to the maximum it could get away with. And sometimes it's too much, but that's what makes it what it is. And it's kind of one of those, you know, snapshot in time kind of things that maybe you couldn't get away with some of the things it does if you made that movie today. And that's part of what makes revisiting it kind of exciting that it's just this, this really <laughs> intense, insane thing. I still wish I had my blue t-shirt <laughs> from JC Penney's. Uh, I wish you did too. <laughs> it's summer <laughs> to wear it every day. And I still would very special feelings in my heart for Temple of Doom. most fun of the movies and I like some of the other ones better personally but at the same time I like it you know I just I'm more of a humor guy than a dark guy I liked a lot of the movie but the greatest thing that ever happened to me in my life came out of the Temple of Doom experience and that is that the girl I cast to play Willie Scott you know turned out to be my wife so in a sense I owe more than I can ever express to that experience for introducing me to Kate Capshaw. But um, all four of the Indiana Jones films have been a blast to make. I mean, don't get me wrong, whether they're, the stories are dark or not, they're really a lot of fun. We have a lot of laughs, and we always have the audience in mind for these stories. We are going to die! in prizes and coupons playing the Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom game brought to you by 7-Up. This is more than a game. Play now and bring the adventure home. Look for the 7-Up display at your local supermarket and play the Indiana Jones $25 million game. You lost today, kid. If you are listening to this on some sort of Apple something or other, go over there, write a little something nice about the show. It helps the show in mysterious ways. It helps people when they're looking up Star Wars podcasts find blast points. Even though they'll find this and they'll be like, what the heck? The, the, the people are talking about Indiana Jones. I thought this was Star Wars. But hey, leave us a review anyways on Apple because we love them. We love reading them. And make sure you check out our website, blastpointspodcast.com. And follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And if you're on Facebook, make sure you're in the Super Chill group. And let us know your thoughts on Temple of Doom. Favorite parts? Is it too scary? Did you terrify your kids with this movie? (laughs) Do we need to start a support group for parents who've traumatized their children's? And we've got the Blast Points Army over there on Patreon, where every weekend we've got Bad Batch review episodes. And like we said, our Temple of Doom full movie commentary is going to be made available for free for you to check out. If you want to watch Temple of Doom and hear a lot of the same stuff we talked about in this episode all over again. (laughs) Or listen to large stretches of us forgetting to talk because we're too sucked into the movie. (laughs) That's a really good part. I'm not even going to talk at all. But that wraps up episode 273 here. Looking back at Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Temple of Death. Talking about Temple of Doom is like riding in the minecart chase. It's ups and downs, twists and turns. Sometimes the bridge in front of you breaks. (laughs) But you really just spend most of the time shaking. But yeah, we've got a lot more indie year fun coming later this year. So... Thank you, everyone, for listening. 
Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Anything goes. So there's one more Temple of Doom story that we have to tell you about. Right, Gabe? Yeah, there's one more incredible story in the Rensler book. They were planning some second unit shooting in Northern California, and there was a big meeting. And according to Frank Marshall, he says, it was a large meeting, all production people going over storyboards. Stephen and George were there, and we were deep in discussion. But about midway through the meeting, George got up and walked over to the door and said, well, I'll see you guys later. Stephen asked, where are you going? And George says, I've got a guitar lesson. Henry Jones, Junior. 